You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 9, and then chapter 2, I'm going to jump down to verses 15 and 17, and then I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 3. That's the plan. Hear then the word of the Lord, Genesis 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life need and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and, the, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way 
guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. I'm noting on my sermon, the very first sentence uh, is already erroneous. Uh, My first sentence is, we'll be spending two weeks on this passage. I have since decided we will need at least three. Um, I think three. I'm pretty confident about three. Um, We're going to be considering it today from a high level to think about covenant theology and the value of covenant theology. Next week, we're going to delve into the details to think about the fall of man. And the third sermon I'm now going to have us focus on after the fall of man, we'll talk about the curse. I was originally thought I could do that all in one sermon. I'm going to do fall of man and then the curse. So we'll be here at least a good three sermons in Genesis chapter 3. We will pick up the pace a little bit as we get farther into the book of Genesis, but, but, but these opening chapters, so much foundational material, we've got we to gotta slow down. And so today, then, we're going to talk about covenant theology. Maybe you've heard people use that terminology, covenant theology, and didn't know what they meant. Or maybe you've never heard of that terminology. Well, today, you will get a primer on covenant theology. It's a foundational concept that will help you to properly interpret Scripture wherever you happen to be studying the Bible. It's an important thing to be able to have as part of your tools for understanding God's Word, this structure, this framework, that wherever in the Bible gives you some important context as you understand this idea that we'll talk about today of of covenant theology. Because this idea is so foundational, We should not be surprised then to find its foundations right here at the very beginning, here in Genesis. And so, in our first point for today, I'm going to give us an overview on covenant theology. So you have an idea of, if you don't know what I'm talking about already, you'll have an idea of what what we're talking about. And then in the uh, next two points, we'll delve into some of the details as we see them here. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Let's begin then with an overview of of covenant theology. We'll start with a definition. Let's define covenant. What's a covenant? Well, in general, a covenant is a formal agreement between two parties, often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. Side note, you might find various more elaborate or fancy definitions of covenant, but that's a, a good one I just brought, just sort of a general one there. A formal agreement, a formal agreement or contract between two parties, often accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. We, of course, can commonly see covenant as a concept in modern weddings, right? Typically, that's what's going on in a a typical modern marriage ceremony, is a couple is entering into a marriage covenant. And what do we normally see? We normally see oaths, signs, and ceremony to solemnize their marriage, their marriage covenant. Now, as a side note, and related to what we'll be talking about as well, it is important to note that not all covenants are always between equal parties. Think about one example we see in history a lot is in the ancient Near East, there's a type of covenant known as a suzerain-vassal treaty. A suzerain-vassal treaty. Such a big word. Suzerain, 
hyphen vassal. Think of it as, as the, the Lord and the subject. But imagine a treaty between two nations. The more powerful nation is the, is the suzerain. The lesser nation is the vassal. And they enter into a covenant, a treaty, where there are stipulations that the vassal has to follow. And the suzerain in the covenant says, if, if, if the vassal keeps these stipulations, I will bless them. They'll get my blessing. And if not, they'll get my cursing. That's an example of a historic set of covenants that show that the parties aren't always of equal standing. So in the Bible then, if you look to the Bible and look to covenants, we can see a lot of different kinds of covenants from cover to cover in the Bible. Some of those covenants are just covenants between humans. And, and sometimes those are just covenants of one peer to another, sometimes it's nation to nation, but, but you see different kinds of covenants in the Bible. But you especially see, and the kinds that we're especially excited to talk about, where God is covenanting with mankind. And that's what we're getting at when we're talking about covenant theology here. We're talking about the covenants we see between God and man in the Bible, and that becomes a framework then for reading and understanding the Bible because it's a framework for understanding our relationship with God. If God defines the terms of his relationship with man in a formal mechanism of a covenant, then that will help us understand the nature of that relationship with God. Wherever you're at in the Bible, you, you ought to ask, what specific covenant between God and man is operating here? That's part of that context. Uh, last uh, weekend at the snow rally, the youth were being taught by Pastor Gene Crow there about studying the Bible, how to study the Bible. And he wasn't talking about covenant theology there, though this would be part of it, but he's saying you need to look at the context, 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 context. That's so important. Part of the context is covenant theology. What covenant is operating in the, in the context of this passage? Well, broadly speaking then, to understand covenant theology, we should recognize that there are two main covenants that we see expressed in human history. There's the covenant of works, and there's the covenant of grace. Remember in our bulletin outline there, covenant works, covenant grace, we're going to talk about those in a moment. But there's, broadly speaking, two main covenants in human history. The covenant of works, covenant of grace. The covenant of works here is made with Adam and all his posterity, all his descendants, his offspring. When he broke it, all humanity broke it with him. Saw that in Romans 5, made that point, right? That left all humanity condemned under the judgment of God according to our failed works in the covenant of works. Again, that's why we call him a, Adam a federal head or a covenant head. And yet after that first covenant was broken, God graciously made a new covenant with man, specifically with his elect, called the covenant of grace. The covenant of of grace. The covenant of grace is the one overarching covenant by which God saves his chosen people through a salvation that is that is by grace through faith in a savior. I say it's an overarching covenant. 
Because as you look at the details of Scripture, as we study the Bible, we see this one overarching covenant of grace has various historical administrations of it in the Bible. So, for example, uh, you see it promised here in Genesis 3.15. We'll talk about that. Afterwards, you see different specific administrations like the Abrahamic covenant or the Mosaic covenant or the Davidic covenant. These are administrations of the one covenant of grace. It's the same covenant of grace that has in its administration some different details like worship style under the old covenant is a little different than worship style under the new covenant, but there's still one overarching covenant of grace. Of course, in the New Testament, we see another one, another expression, another administration, and we call that the new covenant. The new covenant. Jesus said, right, we talked about the supper passage in Luke, the new covenant. And so things like Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, new covenant, they're all an outworking of the one covenant of grace. And why this is so important is it helps us to realize from cover to cover in the Bible, the only way man is ever saved, it's by grace through faith in in a Savior that God would provide. There's never a place where they're saved by works here and saved by grace here. We lost that opportunity after we broke the covenant of works. After that, one way of salvation, even though there's these different covenant administrations, it's one overarching covenant of grace. That'll become more clear as we look at the two separately in a moment, but in general, as you keep going through the Bible, sort of think about these these two covenants as part of the framework. So that's a, that's a bit of, a, of an overview on covenant theology. Now we'll delve into specifically to think a little bit more about the covenant of works that we find here in Genesis. I, I, w- I will note, maybe you've heard this by other languages as well, the covenant of works has a few other names that have been used in history. Sometimes it's referred to as the covenant of creation because it's made here when man is first created. So sometimes it's called the covenant of creation. Sometimes the covenant of works is called the covenant of life in view of the reward held out, right? If they obey and keep the covenant, they will live eternally. And so sometimes it's called the covenant of life. But I really like the language of covenant of works. I think it's the most popular language for good reason because it it contrasts really nicely to covenant of grace, right? Covenant of works, first grace, works, first grace, works, first grace. Think of Romans, Galatians, like really bringing out that notion of works, first grace. Really helpful language. Anyways, covenant of works. Let me point out the obvious here. Genesis chapter 3 here, or the, and part of the 2 that we read as well in chapter 2. It, it, it's showing us the establishment of the covenant of works. I, I want to point out the obvious. The word covenant does not actually appear in this chapter, right? In the passage we read, there's no word covenant there. Some have wondered, is it appropriate to call this a covenant? When the word covenant doesn't even appear. Well, let me answer that with an analogy. I said next week's sermon will talk about the fall of man into sin. That's where we find it here, right? In this chapter 3. But the word sin doesn't appear anywhere in this chapter. Nor any of the synonyms for the word sin. It's not, though, that that concept of sin didn't exist yet, because in the very next chapter, Genesis 4, the word sin appears right away. Talking about a separate sin then, talking about uh, sin with regard to Cain. But this chapter 
When it talks about mankind's fall into sin, even though it never uses the word sin, it's obviously talking about sin. Well, that's my analogy. This chapter does not use the word covenant, but when we look what's going on here, we see the kinds of marks of a covenant. And so we're right to recognize there's a covenant going on here. Right from the beginning, we see some covenanting of God and man. And we've called this covenant the covenant of works, or sometimes of life or of creation. So the covenant is summarized in chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so for starters, I want you to notice there's some oath-like language here. We said covenants tended to have oaths. This language, when it, you see the surely that's mentioned twice, what gets translated in English as surely in the Hebrew is rather formal and emphatic language. Um, there's a typo in my manuscript here as well, but I meant to say in Hebrew, that's common in, in covenants, that you see that kind of language, the surely language, because it's put in a formal, emphatic way. So elsewhere we see you know, God in more, in more elaborate ways. It, it speaks of him literally making an oath or swearing by him himself his promises that he gives in covenant. But that's the sort of stuff we got here with this shrewdly language. Well, we can also see the parties of the covenant here uh, in Genesis. The covenant is made between God and the first man, Adam. But it becomes clear that God's covenant here is not simply with Adam individually, but with all humanity, with all who are in Adam. And you don't have to go out of this text. You don't have to go to Romans 5 to find that. It's right here. It can be clearly inferred in chapter 3, verse 2. When the woman reiterates the covenant as something that, that, that she's under as well. Adam is Eve's head. And she too becomes part of the covenant. And you keep reading. When we get to the curse section, we'll see it in a couple sermons from now the descendants of Adam and Eve are referenced in the discussion of the curse. You see what Adam and Eve do, it has an effect on the, on the descendants because they're part of the covenant too, even though they're not even yet born. They're there in Adam and Eve. So even here in Genesis, you see that this is something that involves all humanity, even with Adam being in the head. So then the summary of the covenant in 2.16, we find that it lists both stipulations along with blessings and curses. This is typical in covenants, that there are stipulations, things that are supposed to be done, and there are blessings and curses. If you keep the covenant, these are the blessings. If you break the covenant, here's the curses. And so here, the specific stipulation that is mentioned, they could eat of any of the trees in the garden except for this one forbidden tree. They weren't allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they obeyed, they would live. If they disobeyed, they would die. That's the blessing and the curses, life or death. I really love how the Westminster Confession summarizes this, this idea in chapter 19.1. I'm going to read, read that little excerpt here from the Westminster Confession. Quote, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience 
promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it. Love that language, good little summary. And the confession actually goes on to say that this law that was given to Adam is the moral law, the same sort of moral law that God would later give to Moses on Mount Sinai. The idea is there's this principle of obedience to God that can be summarized in a number of different ways. Think of how we could summarize the moral law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a summary of God's moral law. There's a summary of the moral law that's a little bit bigger, the Ten Commandments. Right? That's a summary of God's moral law. I won't quote the whole thing. As another summary of God's moral law, I think this is the idea. Of all the trees you may eat except this one. The idea there is I'm God. You're not. You need to obey me. I may be putting a little bit more of a, more of a stern sense there, but this is the idea that, that God is to be obeyed because he's God. His moral law is embodied in that one little idea here. Under the covenant of works, obedience to the moral law would yield life under the covenant works. Disobedience would yield death. And so we've already seen various typical parts of a covenant right here in Genesis. But let's notice as well when we're thinking covenant, notice these two special trees. Part of it too. I think we should understand these two special trees to be sacramental in nature. In that they are signs, symbols bound up in the covenant. I'm going to explain this as we keep going here. You know, there's all these trees in the garden, but just two are highlighted for us. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. To understand them as sacramental is to say to recognize they don't possess some physical properties that would cause some physical effects. You know, in other words, like take the tree of life. It's probably, surely not the case that the tree of life had some sort of really, really, really superfood. You know, superfood that if you ate it, it just was so healthy for you that your body would just live forever. It's surely not what was intended. But that God would convey immortality through it. God would choose to convey life sacramentally through it. And that's shown, I take that from inference from what is shown for us here on the other tree. They're told, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And that was apparently sacramentally true. It was clearly not a physical feature of the tree and its fruit. What do I mean? This tree apparently did not have poisonous fruit. It wasn't him saying, don't eat of that because that's going to kill you, like physically kill you. No, that was not the case. Uh, here it says, I said 2 verse 6, that's not right. Um, 3 verse 6. She looks and sees that the fruit was good fruit. It wasn't poisonous fruit. Physically speaking. But if they ate of it, they would fall into sin. They would plunge themselves into a state of death. 
It wasn't that it was somehow physically conveyed through the fruit. It was sacramentally conveyed. Kind of like where Rome goes wrong with the supper, where they think that the bread and the wine are physically, actually, the body and blood of Jesus. That's wrong. They missed the point. This is sacramental. Same here going on with these trees. Surely that's the right way to take it. There's a sacramental value. Sacramental as signs and symbols tied up with the covenant. That would happen with man as they interacted with these trees in light of the covenant. Think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Realize, what could you have alternatively named it? It's, notice, it's not called the tree of death. That might have been a good thought, right? Maybe we should call the tree of life versus the tree of death. One you eat and you die, one you eat and you live. Maybe you could think that's a pretty good name, right? But, but he doesn't call it the tree of death. Because think about that. It would only be a tree of death for them if they ate of it. But sacramentally, symbolically in the covenant, what it stood for, the name of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a much better name. It actually fit all circumstances. If they did eat of the tree, they would in their sin come to have an experiential knowledge of good and evil by those who chose evil over good and suffer, suffered the consequences of their evil. But if they did not eat of the forbidden tree, if they had even resisted temptation to eat of that tree, they would have experientially come to the knowledge of good over evil. They would have enjoyed the reward of their goodness. This is part of Satan's lie. We'll get into more next time. But either way, they're going to come into the knowledge of good and evil. But one is going to be through sin. And the other is going to be through righteous, would have been through righteousness and obedience. Either way, their state would have been changed, either advanced in their knowledge or debased in it. And this tree in the covenant played a real part in that change of state. But not because of, surely not because of some physical effect in the fruit itself. That's why we think of it more of a sacramental sense. Okay, hopefully, that, hopefully that makes sense. If not, ask me afterward. I'll probably do a, just as bad a job of explaining it. But, but I'll try. And, and so then it's truly this is the case with the tree of life. While this tree of life is mentioned in, in chapter 1, verse... Or, where did I get my 2, verse 9? Yeah, 2, verse 9. It's again mentioned in 3, verse 22, after the fall into sin we're to understand that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, it seems that it's saying that they had not yet eaten of this tree of life. But if they did eventually eat of it, it would somehow give to them an eternal life that they did not yet enjoy. John Calvin described that tree of life as a sacrament, as a guarantee of immortality. As they ate of it, they would be assured by God that He would give them such eternal life. But since they broke the covenant by eating the forbidden fruit, they were no longer qualified to eat of the tree of life. And so consequently, God banishes them from the garden to keep them from access to that tree. The fact that they had apparently not yet eaten of this tree of life has led many a theologian to understand that what is going on here in the garden is what we call a probation. Probation. God was testing. God was testing them to see if they would live for good 
or for evil. If they were confirmed as good, they would live. If they chose to do evil, they would die. The idea is that once they had passed the test and proven their righteousness by their works, that they would eventually have had opportunity to partake of this tree of life and thus live forever. And so the tree of life represented what they would be rewarded with after they passed the probation, after they passed the test. That's that's a a very common way of, of, of understanding what's going on here in the bigger picture of the whole covenant of works. And let me, let me comment then that this blessing of life and this curse of death, it's really only begun to be revealed here in terms of its full significance, its, its, its most fullest explanation. What do I mean? It talks life and death, and you could just think again, just very simplistically, you could just sort of think just, just physical life and death as we think but, but surely the text suggests that there's more here than just a mere physical life and death. And the rest of the Scriptures teaches us there's more here than just a mere physical life and death. The eternal life that Adam and his posterity would have come to have earned was surely more than just physical continuance in the state that they began in. Same thing with the death that God threatened here the death that would come upon them, it was surely more than just physically dying. The eternal life that, that they would come into, it would, it would be of all the sorts of things that we see promised to us as Christians for eternal life and, 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 and glory. All that we're looking forward to and excited. It's not that we somehow end up in a better place. No, it's what they would have been able to ultimately come to. That there's... Uh, that they would be in a paradise where there would be only good things, no pain, no sorrow, no death, no sin evermore. God would dwell with them and us in a temple-like experience. We'd have glorified bodies that aren't subject to death. Again, think of everything else we're promised about glory. That's what they would have ultimately come into. Similarly, with with the death. The eternal death that they would that they would come into, would embody all that we learn elsewhere in Scripture is in store for the ungodly. That, that death is both physical and spiritual, ultimately in a place of everlasting conscious punishment, a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Right, The Revelation speaks of the lake of fire. That's ultimately as well what's here in the death idea. Those two final states are detailed elsewhere in the Bible, but there are hints. There are hints right here. There are hints right here uh, that such eternal life was more than just their current physical life. That's hinted at here in how they were kept from that tree of life. That they, had they been able to take it, there was something more, even though they were alive then. There was something more than just their current physical existence that they would have come into. See, it's hinted there that physical life was, it was more than just that. And, and same thing with the death, right? The death that's held out here, threatened here, had to be something more than just physical death, right? Because, because 
God said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they ate of it, and they did not at that moment physically die. But they did enter into a state of death that very day. And that's clearly taught in Romans 8.10, Ephesians 2.5, and in various places. They immediately uh, began in, in their fall into a state of death. But as soon as you say that, you realize, not in a simplistic way. Life and death here are hints of something far more involved. And so the promised blessing of life and the threatened curse of death held out in the covenant of works is something more than just mere physical life and death that we know of in this age. The rest of the Bible makes it clear, but it's even here hinted at in Genesis. So don't understand this life and death in a simplistic way. We see the hints, and the rest of the light of the Bible helps us understand it more. So then we found here in Genesis that this arrangement between God and man has the general parts of a covenant. And so we can rightly recognize what's here as a covenant, the covenant of works. And sadly, man broke it and showed himself to be evil and not good. Left to the state, none in Adam can be justified by works. None in Adam can be justified by works. You cannot do enough good things to be in a right standing before God. You are a fallen creature in Adam. In Adam, we would be declared evil and damned to God's just wrath in an eternal death. But praise be to God, here in this chapter, we find an expression as well of the covenant of grace. And so briefly, in our third point, I'm referring now to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. Speaking in terms of curse to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Next week, we'll delve, well, probably now, two weeks from now, we'll especially delve into this section more, and realize, and well, we'll look at it next week as well, how the serpent that it's really Satan behind the serpent here. And so realize what Genesis 3.15 is getting at. It's surely much more than just how people will hate snakes. My wife likes to point out, though, that she hates snakes for good reason. Um, and sometimes people bite snakes, by the way. Some people smash snakes. Anyways, um, surely we see more. There's a lot of hints of more behind these things, right? There's more going on here. Also, there's a conflict between Satan and mankind. And we come then to realize Genesis 3.15 is a promise of the covenant of grace. And when you think of the covenant of grace, uh, you can think about a whole bunch of cool things, but one of the aspects is dealing with this enemy, Satan who was the one who instigated us and tempted us to fall. So, looking at 3.15 then from that perspective, this literal language looks ahead to the future. We see ongoing enmity, opposition, conflict between Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. We see there's going to be this ongoing hostility between Satan and his allies. And us humans. There will one day come a descendant of Adam and Eve that will strike the head of the serpent, that will strike Satan, who at the same time will be striking that descendant of Adam and Eve. I would note under ordinary circumstances, when you imagine a, a serpent and a man, 
the serpent biting the heel, the, the, the man crushing the head. You could think I'll both die. But when we think beyond mere snakes, we realize this is speaking of that final, ultimate confrontation between Satan and a human, and that human is Jesus. And that's exactly what happens at the cross of Christ. Scripture tells us it was Satan behind Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus to the cross. Satan's thinking, I'm getting Jesus here. And Jesus actually did die on the cross. But it was simultaneously Jesus crushing the head of the serpent, dealing a death blow to Satan. 1 John 3.8 says, the reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. Satan has become a defeated enemy and already not yet death blow. Revelation 12.11 speaks of the, uh, the serpent being conquered by the blood of the Lamb. That blood has been spilt. For in a glorious turn of events, Jesus is raised from the dead in the ultimate demonstration of of victory over the devil. Now I will note that the cross of Jesus did involve more than just conquering Satan. We talk about things like it's a propitiation, an offering to God for our sin, it's an atonement, it turns away God's wrath, it puts away the guilt of our sin. God's covenant of grace involves all of that grace in how it fully deals with sin, our sin, so that we're right with God. So there's a whole bunch of wonderful things we could say, and we do say when we talk about what we have by grace in the covenant of grace. But isn't it so fitting that the first little tiny promise of the covenant of grace, here in Genesis, Genesis 3.15, is put as a promise that this ancient serpent would be defeated. The one who tempted us here from the start. And so as the Bible continues to unveil the covenant of grace, we learn that it is through the covenant of grace that God brings salvation to those whom God would redeem. It's not something we work to get at. That's why it's a good name, covenant of grace. It's not a covenant of works anymore. It's a covenant of grace. It's something we don't earn. We had that opportunity on the covenant of works. We failed. But the covenant of grace is the way that God brings salvation as a gift. We receive it by faith. That's the only sort of condition, so to speak. It's, it's, it's received by faith, and we're made right with God because of the righteousness of Christ. He told us that if we want to be a beneficiary of the covenant of grace, we need to have faith. Genesis 3.15 is something that they can begin to have faith in. So that salvation from the very beginning comes in the one way. And so we have here in Genesis, even in chapter 3, the framework, this framework of covenant theology that becomes useful for us throughout the whole rest of the Bible. Two covenants, works and grace, revealed to us both law and gospel in the covenant of works, we failed to merit eternal life instead of earned eternal death. But in God's great grace, He's provided this way of salvation in Jesus, our Redeemer, 
by faith in his name. May this framework of covenant theology aid us as we study the scriptures. May this framework aid us in distinguishing works from grace. May this framework remind us of our failings, our sin, how fallen we are, and why we need God to save us. May this framework remind us of God's faithfulness to save us, even as He covenantly swore that He would do it. May this framework assure us of that salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. May this framework of covenant theology result in our praise of our great and gracious God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray thankfulness. We, we, we pray with thankfulness. We pray thanking you. Lord, we're humbled by your graciousness to us. Lord, we thank you that you do not do anything haphazardly or on a whim, but all that you do in history is an outworking of your glorious and wonderful eternal decree that you even covenant with man. And in that demonstrated your faithfulness. Lord, you cannot deny yourself. And so we thank you for the assurance of salvation that we have in the covenant of grace even after we had come to know the certainty of judgment that we otherwise would have experienced under that covenant of works. Lord, may this truth we studied today help us, Lord, as we study all the scriptures, but also bear in our hearts such wonderful fruit of assurance and peace and joy. And we ask then that you would bless us as we are renewed in this new covenant, as we partake of this covenant ceremony of the supper that you've given for such a purpose. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.